not going to do that. In this first part, we're going to talk about the Pyrene... Pyre- <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> three for three, Dave. Well done. Yay! I'm going to say good work. I'm going to say good work. Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shao Kazal. And I'm Rob Kernan. We're excited to be back for season two and for what's coming in 2023. Lots of good things on the horizon. Shao, Rob, did you have a good break? I spent my Christmas holiday cleaning up the attic because we are moving houses somewhere between April and June. So I had a very stressful Christmas holiday this year. And you, Rob? Uh, I did virtually nothing other than go through the Christmas motions, which I was very excited about. Uh, we all know about your Christmas motions, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> however, I did have three weeks off, so I got back to work and had mild panic on arrival at my laptop, trying to work out what I did for a living. Um, but I got back into it. Well, it's good to see you guys and excited about the year ahead. To kick the year off, we've got a special two-part episode talking to the authors of The Value Flywheel Effect, Power the future and accelerate your organization to the modern cloud. So a huge welcome to David Anderson, Mark McCann, and Mike O'Reilly. Guys, it is great to see you. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Well, my name's Dave Anderson. I'm a, a author and of the Value Flywheel Effect and contributor to Serverless Age. I'm based here in sunny Belfast, and I'm also a, a practicing architect. So I, I still like to do work as well as write books. But um, <laughs> I'm married with two small children, so very happy to be here. Welcome. I'm Mark McCann, architect with Globalization Partners. Helped with the, the Value Flavor Effect book. Uh, I'm married uh, to Gillian and I have two small children as well. well. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, Mark. And Mike? Yeah. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Mike O'Reilly. Um, similar to the guys, so practicing software architect, currently employed with Globalization Partners, contributor with the Serverless Edge, and sort of co author with Dave and Mark on the Flywheel Effect. Good to see you guys. In this first part of a two-part episode, we're going to talk about the good work that you guys did at Liberty Mutual and how that led to the thinking in the book. So let's start with then, when did clouds first start to come onto the horizon? We'd started um, massive virtualization um, um, push, which was brilliant, give us a lot of flexibility within the data center. And then we started to burst in AWS, but around about, I think it was 2013, I took a CTO role in, in, in Ireland um, and then we started, became kind of the architecture team and I was quite lucky because around 2013, we were starting to have more serious conversations with AWS to talk about what, what could we do. So for me personally to be sitting at that table, represent Liberty Mutual, talking to AWS about where we're, we're now investigating public cloud, mm. that was a fantastic opportunity. But then as my peers in the in the like the enterprise architecture team, we were as we were looking around, a lot of the brilliant, brilliant, brilliant technical leaders, their first concern obviously was security, right. um, networking, data, you know, on ramp, all the all the infrastructure type concerns, which absolutely are number one. But I was kind of sitting thinking, well, our specialist is software. So how do we write software in this new in this new environment? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the problem I took back to our team in Belfast. It's like, this is this is going to happen. It'll, it's not going to happen overnight. 
But we need to think, you know, a few years down the line, what does software look like? And that was the, that was the question we started asking ourselves. That, that is a big adoption step, isn't it? When people, when a penny drop moment happens that actually we have to architect for this, that like there's something sort of fundamentally different about it. It's, it's not like we're going to get a thousand page contract that's going to, that's going to lock all of this in for us. Yeah. And I mean, you know, all the whole ideas of all the, the, the cloud principles around elasticity and all that stuff. How do we bake that in? I mean, we can't. It's going to be completely automated. Um, and I used to always use the the the, the wave of disruption. Like, this is common. You know, the, the great wave that was like, to always kind of remind people like this is common. So we need to uh, start thinking differently. And, and and what was your wider conversation with the rest of the organisation about it at this point? Did were you declarative about it, like guys? Very quickly, we need a cloud strategy. And from an LT perspective, or leadership team perspective, we're going to need to take a view on this. Or did, did it start more tacitly and more technically, if you like? I think, well, I think there was, I think we knew that, that we needed to change how we wrote software. And, and we were very open in those conversations. And there was, there was we, we didn't know, we, we had no idea around, as, as architects, what the, what the answer was. And we were exploring different things as an organization. We had our kind of pretty mature like Java E type practices around that traditional, you know, enterprise design patterns. Um, we had a kind of a lot of exploration around PaaS and Cloud Foundry, mm. which was fascinating and that whole way of, you know, a pairing in TDD based stuff. Um, we had the big kind of Docker contingents looking at um, containerization and, and that kind of swish. And then what, what really happened for me, the penny that dropped for us was when Lambda came out in 2014. We were at reInvent when Lambda was announced. We thought, ooh, that looks interesting. But what specifically was it about that that caused a bit of a light bulb moment? Something, Mark, when you're always quite keen on is that, that the, we, we, and the, a great friend of ours, Ed Carmody, one of the, one of the lead architects, we say this phrase, no undifferentiated heavy lifting. Yeah. Don't, we're not going to do things that no, we don't like need to do. And he's been saying that for like 15 years. Yeah. So that, that, phrase always stuck with us yeah I think, I think a lot of the we were very aware of the operational burden of a lot of the systems we were building and some of the fragility of, of them especially at the scale we were operating at so whenever some of that um, operational burden could shift to the cloud provider that was a big ah right okay so we can focus more on the differentiating value we can position mm-hmm. ourselves higher value chain and we can offload a lot of this to the cloud provider I think that penny dropped you know that that you know, removing a lot of the things that we would have to have, have had to do in the past was now you know the the value line moved right. We right. We, we were able to move ourselves up the value chain a little bit further. Yeah, and we actually used to we we used to talk about the line, something we would talk about like from way back then, over ten years ago. We talked about where will we draw the line. This idea of and, and really what that was what, what that's become now is a shared responsibility line with with AWS. But we were we've been talking about that line before we moved AWS. Where, where, where is that kind of line of the platform and what we need to do? Yeah, and a, a lot of it was around, around time to value because we we've gone through this journey from you know, two thousand all the way through from mainframes to you know big SOA systems to BPM systems to mm. more microservices, you know, Spring Boot, Docker, and then Lambda came along. And it was all about how can we get value out more quickly, right? You know, how can we reduce the lead time for? Hey, we need to order up more servers or more IFLs or more racks for to now. Okay, can we can we rapidly get the value into the hands of our customers? It, it, can we more quickly get that value to to who needs to have it? 
in the long list of things that happen in that route to value and like route to utility and actual, you know, customer centric service, what were you using to sort of guide you in that in terms of understanding this is a value component versus this is a undifferentiated piece of heavy lifting? Well, there was, <clears throat> I think there's probably two important things there. I think the the, the business leadership of, of Liberty were always very clear on, on what value looked like. There was never any confusion of what was important and it was always absolutely the policyholder number one never any mistakes. So there was very clear messaging from leadership. From a, so from a business perspective, that was crystal clear. But around that time, we discovered Simon Wardley oh, yeah. starting to talk about Wardley mapping and how, and it was the Wardley mapping technique was fascinating, but we completely did not understand it. We were lost. Maybe just say a word, time. Dave, for those who haven't heard of it, just, just say a word on what it is. So Wardley mapping is from the researcher, Simon Wardley. Um, and Simon had been a CEO of a company and he just realized that uh, a lot of the strategic narrative wasn't good enough. So he, he came up with this concept called Wardley Mapping. We pretty much start with a, there's an X and Y axis where there's your customer at the top and a value chain. And the value chain stops from the most visible customer need at the top and then the things that are dependent on that need. Like, you know, if you need a cup of tea, there's a dependency on a kettle and some water and a cup that really clear value line. Mm. And then across the x-axis, you've got the evolution of technology or, or the evolution area axis, which really goes from Genesis, which is something that's brand new, and the fact that it's never been done, it's like it's a wonder, to custom, where we understand what this is, but it's quite difficult to build, to product, which is there's customer need and customer demand for this, to uh, utility or commodity, which is the price of doing business. So, and I think that, that concept of worldly mapping, we just thought was fascinating, but more so the way Simon, his language and his mindset, how he talked about technology evolving, because we could see that happening with what we were doing, but we didn't have the language to talk about that. So we could see things going, that's become a commodity. And it, it often frustrated us when we'd see software teams spend a lot of time on a logging framework. We sit and go, a logging framework doesn't help our policyholder. Do you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> we, just, we just buy that. I'm sure they'd be fascinated by it though. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. and it was really, that, that, that gave us a language and a way to, to share our thinking on that. Yeah. And then we, we really started to think about, you know, who are our users? What are their needs? And what are we doing to meet those needs? And then for the components of that value chain that they had mentioned, how evolved are they? So we started to think in this way. And, and once the penny dropped, we, we started mapping everything, right? We started yeah. to, to draw maps and talk about this in this way. And when, when you mapped out the value chains of components that we had at our disposal at that time, you know, a lot of your on-premises stuff, a lot of you know, um, things that maybe had a long lead time or, 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 or were pretty, pretty well custom built. And then Lambda comes, comes along and it's like a commodity that you can just leverage. It's like, ah, oh, right, okay, we can, we can use that. That, that removes a lot of that undifferentiated heavy lifting that we talked about earlier and allows us to you know, position ourselves higher up the value chain. We can just leverage some of these things. And you also need to be really clear on what's valuable. Like what's the valuable piece of software? And often for insurance, it's like the rules engine. And rules engines had often started, you know, we'll just need one or two rules for this. And they, 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 they grow. They become this unwieldy, custom, complex thing. And we spend lots of time dealing with complicated rules engines that yeah. didn't have to be. Uh, you know, so the, 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 we could just see this everywhere. So it sounds like in like within your team and within a within a group in the organisation, you're developing these like very forward thinking pioneering approaches, bringing in 
as much new thinking as you can. You know, organizations generally uh, have challenges then of communicating that out a bit more widely to sort of wider, even wider IT stakeholders, never mind wider business stakeholders. So take us a little bit through that, how you communicated it outside of the sort of best practice area that you were working in. I would say the, the only way to drive this type of change is via show, don't tell. I mean, there was, there was no way we were going to say, this is the direction of travel. Here's a document, now go forth. Um, we had to pick something, build something, and then actually show real kind of value, you know, like show low cost, show speed to market, you know, show um, rapid um, uh, response time to change. I mean, for me, that's that was the only way. And it, it was only until we had maybe like a, a portfolio of maybe like 10 or 12 really solid projects that you could start. We didn't do it in secret, but no one's going to listen to you unless you've proved out the value of, of, of this idea. Yeah, there, there's a bit of a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach, right? Um, so on the ground, how do we enable these capabilities with the teams on the ground? How do we how do we enable and empower the development teams to be able to embrace these techniques and practices and processes? But also, what's the language for the C-suite? What are the the presentations look like? What are the decks? What are the real talking points that help uh, them get 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 where we're we're trying to what we're trying to achieve? Yeah, I, I would just add to that, like the the bias for action. You know, so really what we were trying to promote within squads at the time, certainly what I remember is, you know, a bias for action. So just try this thing, you know, um, push that sort of agenda forward. But a lot of the squads were getting a lot of the confidence from the architecture team. So the architects would communicate with squads, would, you know, we would, we would, we would sort of work with certain areas and, you know, we had, we had sort of, you know, we would encourage teams to, you know, try something else, you know, you know, move something from Genesis through through custom and, and sort of attack the into the into the product space. So it's really the the teams that were really good at this were had a real strong bias for action. You know, the right. Dave's point was, you know, we, we did it and we we learned a ton along the way. It didn't always go according to plan, but again we could then use that information to you know, yeah. um, and I think that that's, that's where like situational awareness really comes in, and just Sam and Morley talks about this a lot. But we were able to, and we we were absorbing all the stuff. We were reading all the blogs. We were going to all the conferences. We were just sponges for a lot of the stuff. But we had better situational awareness, and like Mike says, with that bass fraction, we were, they were almost like they were our sensing engine. They were probes to see where are the where, where are the impediments, where are the things that are slowing us down, and us as the architecture team. What can we start to invest in to get ahead of that? What are the blockers we can remove? Right. What are the new capabilities that will, will make that easier for the next team? So you know, we, we started to really build up, whether it was um, maybe it's just internally, we, we were talking about this a lot, but we had a really good situational awareness of where everything was and we would draw it on the wall and we'd talk about it quite a lot. And we challenge, we challenge each other. And, and that situational awareness, Mark, did that was that? industry innovation situational awareness or was that applied to to liberty at this point so your situational awareness wasn't just like an academic one it was like right as an organization this is sort of how we're mobilizing at the moment Mm -hmm. i would say i would say both yeah i would say actually both but no i I think the organization was probably more important because remember Mm -hmm. our our small architecture team was starting to grow by this stage coming to like 2016 2017 so we get maybe like you know, nine, ten people. And as the organization in Belfast was also growing, we were working across all areas of Liberty Mutual, across all lines of business and also geographically. 
So we'd, we'd people dipping into all, all sorts of projects. So when we came back to our like daily stand-up or our weekly more detailed meeting, we could sit and go, what's going on around the entire enterprise? Yeah. And you see see patterns. You say, well, there's an experiment here, an experiment there. Which which so is that, good, right? It's like when you when you do look at success in you know, multiple organizations, it generally comes from that type of approach, like multiple lighthouse projects. Yeah. That actually, when you join the dots of those lighthouse projects, it becomes something more yeah. uh, substantial. Exactly. And then I, I as well had the, uh, you know, from knowing the, the, the C-suite and being in those conversations, I, I knew where, what the concerns were, what was happening. And then also as being a big company, you, you talk to a lot of vendors and people will share, come in and, and share ideas. So you're getting a pretty good read of the industry as well, seeing what's happening internally and you can kind of join the dots. It also sounds like you used an agile way of working. Was that a methodology that you were using back then? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the CEO at the time, James McLennan, famously said that around that time, we decided to change Liberty Mutual. So we had a cloud transformation, an agile transformation, a customer-centric transformation, all at the same time, <laughs> which he says was, was, a fair bit. was good to do. But looking back, we maybe shouldn't have done all three at the same time. <laughs> So, uh, which was good, you know, it was brilliant. It was, it was, it was a busy time. We had a lot of figuring out to do, but I, I had been a, a proponent of Agile since like, I remember even before the manifesto was signed. So we had a lot of people who had deep Agile knowledge and we were also trying to work that way of working as well, push that way of working. With the teams and everything going on, there must have been sort of, did you suffer a lot from the cognitive overload? I mean, obviously there are those who are better with it than others, but you've got people transformation, business transformation, technology transformation, you're fast followers on adopting very new technology on the edge of what's just being created in, the, you know, in that thought process. That must have been a bit of a strain on the organization. Is there any points where you thought it was getting a bit too much or, or do you always find, well, you obviously have found a way through, but... Um, must have been some testy times with all of that. It's funny. I mean, I, I, I've been reading and experienced software for many, many years. And sometimes some of the older practices and techniques, you realize they're not so bad. Mm -hmm. So good old-fashioned change management that was vastly underrated. So at least just talking to people, explaining what's happening and why it's happening and just giving people a sense of, sense of security. I think the human element never changes, yep. does it? So, no. how, so how, how you work with the humans being empathetic talking yeah. them through things, being patient sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, one of the things in the book we talk about is that psychological safety. And, and certainly, I think one of the roles that the architecture team provided was, you know, working with squads and providing a certain degree of, of a recover. And, you know, so that would be like setting realistic expectation. You know, so if we had a, like a monolithic product that we were looking to migrate or we were looking to do something, you know, merge a, a new area or something like that, we would always start relatively small. And limit, um, you know what we would take on, um, and and again it would just be celebrating the wins. You know, again the culture is very important. Um, you know we we pride ourselves on the the engineering side of things, and there were certain kind of uh, first order principles that we would always adhere to. You know we get we get into a lot of that. When we talk about the well architected, but yeah, we we certainly that's that that is something that we um, we did consider quite a bit. You know. Um, we always talk about like meeting teams where they're at. Um, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't try and put too much on a squad if we that team didn't have that level of experience. We'd always set we talk about next best action quite a bit, and yeah. you know, and so you know, small incremental t types of approaches. 
Oh, and we also celebrated sort of like engineering excellence as, as a thing. And uh, talking about things like software is a team sport. There is no hero programmers. You know, all that really yeah. good mindset, you know, where people, not resources, a whole bunch of things like that we took from the Agile community and, and reinforced those and, and helped um, teams and peers, not only in Belfast, but across across the entire enterprise. Mm. And, mm. you know, be very clear about being collaborative and and... and, and Working with people and helping people, so that as a as a as a I would say as a, as a generous kind of mindset was absolutely important. There was, there was no competition, you know. It's about we we all win together, so that was absolutely important. Yeah. So, guys, you were you were very fast adopters of new technology being deployed uh, by the cloud providers. Was there any point where you exposed some big issues that gave you? headaches with the technology or did you find those versions going live with things like Lambda did work as they were advertised? Pity you didn't make it in the main flow of the thing, eh? Yeah, I thought I thought about <laughs> it, I went, oh yeah, but the flow had moved on, so I thought, well, you know what, I should ask it now, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad we finally got to it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we were we were I don't know if it was lucky or by design, but we we were always heavily investing in engineering excellence. So we were always at the forefront of how can we have more confidence in our systems and how can we test yeah. things better, right? How can we make sure that we have good CI/CD pipelines and we were able to have stage gates and confidence at every level of the the SDLC, right? So whenever you introduce a new technology, we were bringing that you know mindset and that. You know, engineering excellence approach to to anything new, so like all the sort of the especially because we're insurers and you know policyholders number one, you can't really mess this stuff up. We always had that you know, uh, culture of doing the right thing and doing it well. So like something like Lambda, you know, it's a different sort of uh, paradigm, it's a different you know, model. But things like unit testing, integration testing, end-to-end testing, security, those things were always top of mind. So we were still always thinking about how do we apply those same that same mindset to this new technology. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we were we were lucky in that, that regard. So we were able to catch a lot of the early stuff. Early. We're good to think as well in kind of design patterns and what 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 was the story it would work for versus what it wouldn't work for. And there was also again to be honest, not just with the cloud providers, with many vendors. There's many stories where we would come in with a fantastic or someone come in with a fantastic idea of a product that wasn't quite ready, and we would kind of knock the edges off it and try it and give feedback to the vendor. And um, lots yeah. of those vendors are very successful <laughs> right across the industry, but but there was lots of platforms that we incubated for many years. And again, just good, solid engineering practices to try and you know use what was working and maybe compensate for what was not quite ready yet. There's often a thing that when you take a product from a vendor, there's this expectation that it's bulletproof and it's going to work perfectly. But when you put it in the hands of engineers who are going to create things with it, they often work with it that in a way that wasn't perceived by the original, you know, first design um, of that product. So that feedback loop with the vendors exactly. and coaching them on how you're going to use it, what you're going to use it for, and how you're deploying it, I think can be very, very valuable because then they, they're they very motivated to quickly fix those issues because they're seeing real-world use on something very new. Yeah, and, and there's almost, for me, there's like a, there's almost like a two-step process with a vendor. Is the product interesting? Are they only yeah. partner in that improvement journey? Hmm. Yeah. And I think as a, as a Fortune 100 insurance company, the bar was very high for 
security, compliance, auditability, encryption, right? You name it. So we were always having those conversations with any sort of new technology around, hey, what's the security story you like? What's your encryption address capabilities? What's your encryption in transit? You know, how do we audit this? How do we you know, do this as, as code? You know, how can we do this in a, in a pipeline? So a lot of those early conversations were all about that type of thing, right? How do we make this fit for purpose for, for a big enterprise? And that's a great measure, I think, with the points you've made is, is the product interesting? Is the vendor willing to work with us to improve it? Because we're, we're sure we'll find some hiccups on the way. And then uh, have they got all the necessary, you know, table stakes associated with what you're going to need for the industry and um, yeah, environment v- you're working Vendor in? engagement and flexibility when you've got a pioneering mindset, I think, is, is, is nigh on critical. Yeah. You, then, you, then, you can't take rock, you can't take sort of, boxed in service at that point because actually what you might want to do might be way more valuable than what they're thinking of doing and what they've got prioritized on their backlogs so it becomes ecosystem like i think when you're particularly when you're in the early days of a paradigm shift like cloud yeah and then like dave mentioned working with those vendors and influencing their roadmaps yeah and articulating your needs and making sure that they are um incorporated into the features that they release as, as part of that release cycle i think one of the one of the big success factors for us is we didn't just let the vendors come in and run their workshops and you know, do their show and do song and dance shows we would typically embrace it try it ourselves and sometimes we would even tailor their materials and workshops and make it work for our context and that then made it real for our teams and it wasn't some vendor coming in doing it it was one of us doing the workshops or doing doing the doing the setup and then that gave us the feedback loop, so we were able to find out what what the challenges were, where the impediments to flow were for teams, and then we were getting ahead of that, so that it, it increased the chances of that technology succeeding because you know, we took a personal ownership of of it you know, being being applied. Right? Yeah, and there's also cool. a thing with, with with vendors is that um, like you said, I don't want to talk to the salesperson. I'm not really interested in that conversation. Yeah. But if a vendor has a, a good, strong account manager. That'll probably go well. And there's some vendors we spoke to that that maybe the account manager was just okay and it didn't go so well. So, mm-hmm. the, and it's not all like it's not all about about software engineers. A really strong account manager can really make a massive difference. It, yeah. yeah, because it becomes a content conversation, yep. right? Not a yep. not a not a I'm selling Tractual. you on this conversation. Yeah. Yep. What what I'm really interested in uh, getting a sense of though, at what point did was the catalyzing or tipping point? Do you think where you, you look back and you go, what you guys were doing, what the cloud transformation was doing, what the wider business transformation was doing. When did the seesaw go over? And you think, actually, we're now predominantly, we might not be fully transformed when you say count workloads in the cloud or something, but actually we're really working in a different way now. What was that feeling like? And, and how do, how, you know, what were the key steps moving up to that, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. There was probably... Probably two aha moments for me personally. I'm going to let you guys share what they were like. There was probably locally, we, um, as we were sort of celebrating engineering, a different way of working, we had a, a sort of a, I would say, a, a transformational event. I think it was in 2017. We had like an open space, which was, it was a non conference, but open space is different in the sense that. It's, it's a very specific format, open space technology. So we had an open space to sort of, and the, you ask a question and people participate. So we had a big, we, and the way I, I pitched it was that, um, would anyone like to attend this? 
<laughs> for the whole right. company. So we got maybe like 60% of the conferences. As, as opposed to you have to attend. Yeah. Thing. So yeah. everyone attended by choice. Yeah. And then everyone landed in. And my boss uh, the day before says, so where, where's the agenda for this uh, two-day event that we're spending a lot of money on? <laughs> like, there's, there's no agenda. We're going to figure it out when we get there. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, you know, um, I love that. I love that because that kind of different approach to work from sort of... yeah complicated style of we have to plan everything and like everything has to be yeah. monitored down to the last moment, which is like, no, we're just going to get some, you know, smart people in a room and we'll work out what to do next. No? Yeah. Oh, completely. And you know, there was, there was a very, I mean, um, Matt Wynn helped us. Uh, he was, he was coaching time. So he helped us with the, with the format and just steering us in the right direction. Right. But um, it was just, but the, the two day event just really catalyzed everyone and got everyone really excited that this is this is real we had a couple, a couple of visitors from the from the us over and people were just like this is incredible mm. and then probably the, the second one was um which for me personally it was i think it was about 2020 the aws had a, a serverless first function event that they only specifically focus on serverless first and they had contacted me about a speaker and um Jillian McCann did a great talk at it. Oh, yeah. Werner, Werner Vogels was doing his introduction. Uh. And I, I was sitting watching the introduction and he talked about, he says, in, in the cloud, there's two types of, of way of working. There's infrastructure and application. And infrastructure is what we all know. And then there's application. Says, and this is serverless first. And this is a type of organizational nirvana. And then the next sentence out of his mouth was, companies like Liberty Mutual. And I almost fell off my chair watching uh. it. And I went, wow. <laughs> uh, congratulations! This that, is man. real, That's amazing. You know, so um, it's just—I mean, there's, there's for me, there's something about um, the engineers and the, the the staff being excited about this is different, and then to the external um, recognition that as a company, you know, you're doing something something interesting. So, but there was many many small wins yeah. um, led up to that. Yeah. And I got like a lot of it around that 2014, 2015, 2016, all the way through the the present day. It was all about creating that right environment that was set up for success. And we were working really hard as a team to to put the right things in place so that our teams could could go fast. And you mentioned cognitive burden. You're removing some of that cognitive burden. We did a lot of hands-on workshops. We did a lot of you know, facilitated collaborative practices with teams to help them on the journey. But the penny really dropped whenever it was like, oh, we need to solve this problem. And like the next day, oh, yeah, we've got something working that's in production. You know, that time the market was just incredible. Yeah. And we were starting to see more and more of those wins. And we, we, we were really good at starting to capture some of the success stories because it then helped um, other teams you know, remove any of that fear factor from adopting these ways of working or these technologies. We were able to, and Dave was great, the, sort of co- uh, collecting and, and um, presenting these in a way that you know, the C-suite got and everybody in the organization got that, hey, teams have adopted this approach. They're able to deliver this really impactful business value in days and you can too. And here are the processes and practices that you can you can apply to, to be the same. Yeah, that, that flywheel that flywheel really started to turn completely you know, toward toward the 2019, 2020, 2021. Yeah, people would would tell you things because like we certainly weren't involved in every project. You couldn't be; it wasn't possible. Just want to say, did you hear what happened yesterday? No. Normally, the project that was nine months long that were supposed to be ready in three months' time, well, they just put the production yesterday. And you're like, really? Amazing. How did they do that? Well, they used um, serverless first and well architected and blah blah blah. And you're like, wow, I didn't. Didn't even know they were doing that. So it was just some team thought we want a bit of that. So it was it's just so as Mark says, there was a complete flywheel effect. It just it just went. Yeah. 
Yeah, we we also started we, we also started to roll out engineering excellence sort of reviews that were periodic, and we start to review teams and um and, and let them talk about their successes. And the teams were then just there's a, a flow of fantastic progress. Like here, we've we've hit this customer KPI, we've delivered this new feature, we've we've uh, improved our engineering excellence by a certain amount. You know, we've we've improved our well architected status by a certain amount, and we're going to do this next. And we were we would do this across the entire org, and it wasn't to compare one team against the other. It was so they could all sort of improve in their own context. Yeah, and you started to see that really starting to accelerate towards 2019, 2020. It was just amazing to see. So if you look back then, how long did it take to go through this full transformation? That's a good question. Well, it's probably still happening. <laughs> if you ask the people, they're, saying, <laughs> they're never not ends. finished. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think, I mean, uh, a friend of ours, Sheen Brasillas from Lego, he, he describes it like a rocket ship. Once you get on, you can't get off. You just keep going. There's always more things. Not in a pressurized way, mm-hmm. but like, as I said, the, the flywheel keeps turning. So, um, I would say Liberty's probably been in constant transformation for decades. You know, definitely seems to me that once you get into the new way of working, which includes all of the pioneering spirit, bringing new things in, like you know, the business as usual then becomes almost transformational, right? Some sort of small T, constantly working like that. Yeah, I, I, the, one of the things I kind of noticed as well that was a massive sort of signal of change was there was far more experimentation. You know, for me, that was the main kind of trigger, you know, like, so we talk about like tech and sort of the engineering culture, but the business was far more willing to experiment. And for me, that was something I, was, I wasn't used to up until recent years, right, right towards the end. My time in Liberty, like we'd, we'd build out a product to try and see if a customer would use it. You know, and then what we'd find is really what they're not looking for was that they're looking for something else. Mm-hmm. So, and then I was actually removing functionality, which we weren't doing, you know, and, um, and for me, that, 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 that was a real sort of sign of momentum. Um, and, and I think the agile transformation really began to, began to kick in once we had, you know, we had transitioned a lot of our thinking into the cloud and yeah. we were beginning to sort of move. So that was, you know, but, but I agree. I think it's, I think it's a continuous thing. Yeah. But maybe to bring the first half of our conversation to a bit of a close, I sort of wondered if you had any advice. So if organizations are maybe thinking about going on a journey like this, they maybe started doing some work within their teams, but actually maybe there isn't a big cloud transformation going on that they can sort of partner with. You know, what advice would you give them? Because it can be quite disheartening and quite challenging at times, can't it? Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't discount some of the models out there. A lot of models are useful, you know, and find what works for yourself. One thing that we did was, like, uh, the, the story we're telling, it's not all about architects. There, there's many, many change agents that, that drove the story. But one of the things that we used was the elevator architect approach by Gregor Holt. That you have architects speaking to the C-suite, architects maybe driving portfolio change, and architects in the teams driving that change. So that was really important that people could operate at different levels at different times. Mm. So I think actually being curious and look at the models out there and, 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 and taking what you what will work for you and certainly not taking a single framework and think we'll follow up by the letter and it'll work for us. That that really works. Yeah, I think we, we, we got a lot of value to the elevator architecture approach and it gave us a lot of situational awareness. But I think that coupled with worldly mapping is a really great way to go. Like even you don't even need to call it worldly mapping, just just start asking the teams, well, here are your users. What are their needs? What are you doing to meet those needs? 
And what can we do to improve that mm. is a great starting point for any team to start to think about, you know, their purpose, why they why they exist, what value they're delivering. And a lot of that then you can then you can start to tie it to the cloud transformation. You can start to tie it to you know improve time to value and uh, better engineering excellence. But I think you know, doing the elevator architect and applying the more lead mapping sort of techniques is a great place to start. Yeah, it's all about keeping your world small, isn't it? So, um, you know, we, we talked about a couple of times purpose. You know, big big challenge with these sorts of things is removing the vanity metrics um, from conversations and really understanding what's the purpose. What are we actually trying to hmm. achieve? And, and starting with that and then just encouraging, you know. Um, and plus... That, Another really important technique that we we haven't mentioned yet was the team is the is the the element of execution, not the individual, whatever else. And then when you're thinking about a team, it's team topologies comes into play because one of the most powerful questions that that we use with the team topologies work was what's your team's purpose? What mm. type of team are you? And teams will have to say, well, we're a platform team and we're a value team and we're enabling this other team. You're like, okay, so you're three team types. You should only be one. <laughs> have a single purpose and do yeah. one thing well yeah. don't do three or four things yeah. that was that was a great sort of piece of coaching advice for teams so Shalk, what's trending so each week i will do some research on what's trending in tech and this week i'm going to talk about that according to a study almost half of the businesses struggle to can control their cloud costs. And that is according to a report that was published by business monitoring company Anadot. And they state that 49% of the businesses find it difficult to get cloud costs under control and 54% believes that their primary source of cloud waste is a lack of visibility into their cloud usage. So a huge portion of these inflated cloud bills could have been avoided because most of the respondents said that at least one third of their cloud spend is wasted each year. And this sounds like a big issue at this moment, since most organizations are now cutting costs. And you see, really see that most organizations are struggling to get the appropriate insights. And what do we think drives that? Is that the steps of successful cloud transformation? It seems to me to be a, a banana skin that most organizations, and I say this entirely constructively because I know the one that I was involved in, we did the same thing. You get to the cloud and you suddenly realize after your migrations, oh, I might not have all the capability that I need to have. And, and you know, cost is one of the first areas, I think, to demonstrate that. Yeah. It's also a new thing because... Um, just because you're in the cloud, you, you may still be paying in a capex manner. You may still be uh, mm. budgeting based on trends because you're just thinking, "We'll just do what we did last year, and that's our, our flat budget," you know. But really, the in, in the whole idea of FinOps, and we've talked a lot about kind of green ops sustainability, is when you start to think about go from trend based forecasting to value based. You can scale with the value of your business and your 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 cloud bill. Um, um, fluctuates with the, the value, but two things. One, you need to know what value is. And two, you need to have the right cloud strategy and account set up that you can actually see that. You don't all have everything lumped in one big monolith. So, but one of the things that we have we touch on a little bit in the group, in the book, is the idea of sustainability. And a, a well-designed, well-architected system should be sustainable. And you can, you can see your even your carbon 
usage, which should be lower. And that really is a nice kind of um, kind of a proxy or, or a metric for a good cost or a good well-architected system. Yeah, I think a lot of organizations don't have good observability in place around their their, their costs, right? And um, we, we talk about this when we get the serverless and more sort of um, modern uh, applications, but your cloud bill is your architecture, effectively, if you have it properly instrumented, right? Um, and we do a lot of work with, and we have it in the uh, the long-term value section of the book, of well-architected framework. There's a cost optimization pillar in that. And we would do this with the teams and say to the teams, what's what's the what's the run cost for your solution? Right? Do you know what it costs to run? Do you have a dashboard that shows that? What do the trends look like? So again, throughout all levels of the organization, cost needs to be front of mind. Everybody needs to be aware of the cost of their solutions. So they can uh, they have mentioned that value-based conversation. The team should be able to tell you, hey, our solution costs this much to run, it costs this much per request or per event. And we brought in this much revenue. Those are the type of conversations the team should be starting to be yeah, totally part true. of in the cloud. Yeah, transparency is extremely important. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think there's a, a change. It's always the accountant's fault. That's what I'll say. But the um, <laughs> the, it's the idea that we used to buy something, capex, shove it in a data center. I'm going to depreciate that over five years. Yeah. We don't have to worry about costs now. So the old yep. the old mindset, the organization is that's done and dusted. We did our paper based exercise. We do it again in five years. And cloud has fundamentally changed that, which is the optimization cycle has to be continuous as as, as you discussed. And I think it's just organizations catching up with the, you've got yeah. to think differently, but it goes all the way up through the finance lines, up to the CFO, oh, yeah. and they need to think differently about this stuff. So I think, again, it's a natural maturity cycle that most organizations have to go through because yeah, it's just, it, it, it's a surprise unconsciously walking into something completely different almost. Yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on. I think it's expectation setting. And we had some some interesting challenges with some teams, especially at, at scale. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna do a performance testing run, and then suddenly that month's bill is twenty grand, whereas before it was maybe a thousand dollars, right? So again, it's just being aware of the elasticity, sort of nature of the cloud, and your bills will go up and down based on usage, uh, and, and setting expectations with your key stakeholders that. This will be operational expenditure. It's not just capex that's been written off over seven years or five yeah. years or whatever. Right? It's also a good and, test for how good a performance test is. That's going to cost you ten grand, and that's green dollars. <laughs> so you, yeah, it's worth yeah. running it. <laughs> but the, 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 there was this conversation we had earlier about um, undeterministic processing. So you get to AI algorithms, different data sets. How do you predict what this action is going to cost me? So you can do a performance test run. You get it from twenty to ten to five you know, improve the optimization or improve the efficiency of the system. But when you click the button, the fear of, I don't know how long this has to run for to get me my answer. And there's that type of, how do you bound that context? I don't know if you have any viewpoints on that. We combat that through the engineering side, you know, so per sprint, I'll work with each squad. We'll look at the trends. We'll look at the costs. We'll look at how effective we are. We'll look at safeguards. You know, we'll, we'll look at, you know, it's, it's almost like a form of denial of service. Sometimes, you know, how do we protect from you know unbounded events from from occurring those sorts of things putting in good safeguards you know i think marky talked about that earlier in the sort of the conversation it's it's problem prevention and and really get out in front of that but our main weapon there is the engineering rigor engineering discipline but also the observability of it and just making sure that we are being a wee bit you know um 
predictive when it comes to looking at costs and, and sort of what we're expecting. Yeah. Um, just to build on that, just tell the teams that they're responsible for the bill. Well, that's the other thing. It's like the, 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 what you, what you find is particularly with the teams that are working in sort of more sort of modern cloud type architectures is the biggest expense is the team itself. Um, and you got to factor that yeah. into things yeah, as well. There's a whole um, total cost of ownership uh, conversation here. Ownership. There's also, um, especially when you get the you know, high performing teams, the, 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 the teams almost want to over optimize or, prematurely optimize it's like nice. your, your, yeah. your lambda bill is two dollars lads you don't you, you don't need to, you don't need to spend any more time in this work on something else right yeah your tank <laughs> <laughs> to summarize the advice really set up budgeting alerting upfront in each and every layer of your architecture i see lots of organizations still don't incorporate that in their in their architecture um, and also use the highly dynamically nature and architecture of the cloud itself. Scale up, scale down automatically when needed. And there are some new innovations and technologies on this on this uh, topic as well. Uh, there are lots of companies already using AI to automate these types of management, where the model really learns and adapts to the demands on the cloud services to automatically reduce the runtime costs. And I think that's extremely powerful to invest in yeah, for absolutely. the future a huge issue both for organizations as they're coming out of the back of migration and just generally getting their heads around capability build but as you said at the beginning especially moving through 2023 we know the economic headwinds are going to be quite fierce and it's important that this kind of thing is dealt with almost as a job one as a capability build because it becomes so critical as an enabler to technology uh, and business change going forward yeah i think all all, all the hyperscalers have architecture frameworks that give good practices and best practices that, that'll guide you in this. And I think Google, Azure, um, and uh, AWS have their, their architecture frameworks that have a cost optimization pillar in them. There's great stuff in there. So if you haven't, have a look at that. It's, it gives you great tips. Great tip. Yeah. Definitely recommend that. Yeah. Well, look, we like to end every episode of the show by asking um, our guests what they're excited about doing next. And that could be what you want to do over the weekend, or it could be a bigger... Uh, next big project at work. Uh, Mark, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, I think uh, so. I'm working with Globalization Partners and we're alongside Michael and we are um, applying a lot of the same things that we have talked about in the book uh, to, to a new context, to a new domain. So that excites me, right? How, how can we do this again in a new area? I've been there nearly a year now. I can feel volume two of the book coming on already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so re- doing it again, doing it from scratch, you know, rearticulating those those same things that we, you know, that I might touched on it earlier. Stuff sometimes we took for granted, or we had the arguments, or had the, the fights you know, five, six, seven, eight years ago. Mm. Now you're having to you know, have them again in a new audience, and uh, how do you how do you distill that down? So that that's exciting, and it's and it's great, and getting getting that flywheel turning. Um, Michael was in, in ahead of me, so he, he got the flywheel turning already. So it's just uh, building on that. So uh, yeah, it's, that, that's that's what's exciting. And that's that's the next challenge. Mike, what, what about you? What's exciting you? Um, uh, Man United versus Man City tomorrow at twelve. Oh, oh, oh. There it is. Are you red or blue? Me, I'm red. So I'm interested. <laughs> so looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, just building on what Mark said. Um, certainly, it's you know. Um, We've been asking ourselves those questions, um, 
you know, in terms of the book, in terms of applying it to that new context. And I think what we're finding is, you know, we've been able to actually do it a lot faster because we are applying, we are able to kind of, you know, move past certain things that maybe would have slowed us down in the past. And, um, and certainly we're, you know, I'm looking forward to a lot of the, you know, um, outcomes, I'd say, um, over the next few months anyway, in terms of what we've been ramping up over the last six months. And it is, that's a lot of what we talked about to today. And, and, and what we're finding is it's, you know, we're validating a lot of um, our previous experiences and, and, and taking that forward, getting lots of good feedback as well. I think the other thing there as well is we're doing a lot more externally too, you know, so we're looking at, so how do we sort of do a bit more external, you know, working with, with people, do a bit of training, doing a bit of, you know, um, kind of workshops there and, and, and even the, the local communities too. So getting more involved there, we've been sort of running meetups and, um, you know, speaking with engineers from different backgrounds, different organizations, different contexts, and kind of feeding that into the conversations as well and engaging in that too, which is, which is great. So yeah, there's lots happening. I think this year's going to be a big year. Um, so well, we, we, we wish you both a huge amount of luck. We're going to hear what Dave's excited about in part two of the conversation. So, so join us over there. So a huge thanks to our guests, Dave, Mark and Mike. Thank you so much for being on the show. To our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. So we're not done yet. Join us in part two to hear our three guests talking about how they encoded their experiences into the flywheel model. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in the same reality soon. Bye.